Well, speaking of uh, preparations made for, for Christmas, I, I want to draw our attention back to how we are being spiritually prepared. Last Sunday, we launched a special evangelistic sermon series called Don't Miss Christmas. And if you weren't with us, I shared the reason why this series is titled Don't Miss Christmas, because the hustle and bustle of the holidays and the influences of the world can actually cause us to compromise and have our hearts spiritually ready. The goal of this four-week series is to spiritually prepare us for Christmas by sharpening our focus on Christ and the gospel. And our plan is to be strategic and consider different elements of Christmas that I shared can serve as memory hooks to remind us of the spiritual lessons that we learn so that we can be prepared and that this Christmas could be one of the brightest and most joy-filled Christmases that we could ever have. Amen? Isn't that what we want? Do we just want this Christmas to be special? We want it to be what it should be, and our hearts need to be prepared. Last Sunday, we covered a message called The Light Behind Your Lights. And the tradition of Christmas lights is common across many cultures, Yet we learn that there is one light that truly matters most when it comes to our celebration of Christmas. It's the light behind your lights. We learn that it was a light that never burns out. It's a light that has always existed, that can never be extinguished. It is a light that gives life. It is a light that exalts Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. Well, this week you'll notice in your outline, there is another hopefully intriguing title for you. It is the tree behind your tree. Next to lights, one of the most popular and traditional Christmas decorations is Christmas trees. Last Sunday, I mentioned the tallest constructed Christmas tree in the world, which is in Rio de Janeiro. It stands 278 feet tall and had 3.3, has 3.3 million lights on it. Again, a constructed tree. So I was curious. I was like, what is the largest or the tallest cut tree? And so, of course, there's Guinness records for everything. And I did a little research online. And according to Guinness records, it was a Christmas tree that was 67.36 meters. That's 212 feet. If you want some perspective, this is a real tree over here. And it's exactly 12 feet. Okay, so that, that, that one was 212 feet. It was a Douglas fir erected and decorated at the Northgate Shopping Center in Seattle, Washington in December of 1950. And we were able to find a picture online of what this looked like. You can even see some of the older cars, and it's even got it documented, documented uh, down at the, the bottom. And it's pretty remarkable. And it has 3,600 lights. A little shy of 3.3 million, but um, pretty, pretty remarkable to, to, to see that. We can only imagine the effort. It is a little sad to know that uh, two, two men apparently passed away trying to put a star on top of the tree. I'm just kidding, but that'd be, that'd be, no, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen, but you can only picture if some crazy guy's like, yeah, I'm going to put a star up. We couldn't even figure out a way to put a star up on top of our 12-foot tree, let alone 212 feet. 
Well, as it relates to the number of Christmas trees sold every year across the world, there's no real table that um, affirms the, the number for us. But between the U.S., Canada, and the United Kingdom, it's estimated around 100 million trees are sold annually. It would be interesting to know the figure for all of Mexico, the Caribbean, and the rest of Central and South America, not to mention the rest of Europe and, and Africa. We're talking about hundreds of millions of Christmas trees sold each and every year. And Christmas trees serve as beautiful decorations. The tradition of a Christmas tree does have pagan roots. And this is what happened. Evergreen tree branches were cut off during the winter solstice and they were brought in. One, they have a nice aroma, right? We know that from the smell of Christmas trees. But during winter, what usually happens to all the plants, right? They die. And so one of the trees that maintained its color was the evergreen tree. And so uh, during the winter festivals, uh, the, the pagan tradition began by cutting off the branches and bringing them in. Not only would it allow you to smell the smell of the evergreen, but it, it would allow you to see the, the, the vibrant color. And it pointed toward the spring that was coming. Right? Because we know that as it relates to the year, it's just constantly going back and forth from winter solstice, shorter days, the, the shortest day coming up on December 21st, all the way back to um, the, the uh, solstice, the summer solstice, which is, uh, happens around uh, June 21st, I believe, is, is the date. So anyway, um, it, it also symbolized life and fertility as as it pointed to, to springtime. Eventually, the tr tradition expanded from just cutting down an evergreen tree to, or cutting down the branches to cutting down entire evergreen trees and decorating them with candles. And then when lights became available and ornaments, the tradition continued. Now, Christmas trees are infamous for being some of our most beautiful Christmas decorations. But I have a question for you. How might these trees blind us spiritually when it comes to how we should think about the first Christmas tree? How could they cause us to potentially miss Christmas? Listen to this sobering quote I like to read every year around this time because I believe it offers an important perspective. We have all wondered from time to time whether we might have missed the real meaning of Christmas. People say it's too commercial, or maybe it's too materialistic. Others of us say it's become too politically correct. One thing we might not have considered is this. Perhaps we have made it too beautiful. Most of us, whether we grew up in a Christian home or not, can call to mind Christmas card images of snowy countrysides, horse-drawn sleighs, wreaths of holly, frosty windows, red candles, rosy-cheeked carolers, clad in scarves and hats, and softly glowing colored lights. Besides these, we have all the lovely biblical images as well. Mother and child, animals in the stable, adoring shepherds, and richly robed wise men following a wondrous star across the heavens. It's all so beautiful. And in many ways, the first Christmas was beautiful. But here's what we might forget. The beautiful baby born in the manger at Bethlehem came with a distinct purpose. And that mission was to grow up and in the very prime of his life, surrender himself to the horrors of a Roman cross, shed his blood, and die for the sins of the world. 
Yes, there is much wonder and beauty in what God accomplished on that Christmas 2,000 plus years ago, and we're right to be in awe of it. But all of heaven knew the real reason why Jesus came to earth and was born as a human baby. It wasn't just to teach everyone to be good and to love his or her neighbor. It was to die an agonizing death to ransom us from an eternal death sentence. He came as a redeemer. The shadow of the cross lay over the beauty of that first Christmas night. Think of Mary proudly carrying her newborn son into the temple to have him circumcised according to the law. An old man named Simeon took the child in his arms and prophesied over him, speaking of light and salvation and glory. But before he turned away, he had a sober message for Mary in Luke 2.35. He said, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Within the joy, within the wonder, there is also pain and the red blood paid to redeem us. At Christmas, we decorate our trees with festive lights and ornaments. But the real tree in the Christmas story wasn't beautiful at all. It was a cruel instrument of execution used to bring about the death of God's Son. The Bible says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on that tree and became sin for us. He was born to die that we might live, end quote. To prepare our hearts for Christmas and to exalt Christ and the glories of the gospel, we need to see the tree behind the trees. We need to see the role that it plays in our celebration. Please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. And as your outline indicates, our focus this morning is going to be on a single verse Galatians 3.13. I selected this verse because it encapsulates God's plan of salvation. And the theme of Galatians is justification by faith. And I'll share more about this theme in a moment because it shapes this, this entire Pauline epistle. But let's begin by reading our verse together. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The theme, again, of Galatians is justification by faith. And justification refers to our legal standing before God. How can a person be accepted by God or have an acceptable legal standing before a thrice holy God. It requires faith and trusting God according to his gospel terms. Mankind is desperately wicked. God is perfectly holy. A person must recognize and thoroughly understand both of these realities and see their need to be saved. God provided a Savior through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a person must repent of their unbelief and completely trust in Christ in order to be justified by faith. The entire epistle of Galatians focuses on this reality. And I have a little outline um, for, for those that uh, appreciate having a, a full perspective on the biblical book that, that we're studying. The first two chapters, Galatians 1 and 2, we see justification by faith defended. In chapters 3 and 4, we see justification by faith explained. 
And in the final two chapters, five and six, we see justification by faith applied. Okay? Defended, explained, applied. And Galatians 3.13 falls into the section where the Apostle Paul, who was led by the Holy Spirit, explains what justification by faith is. And if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version of, of the Bible, above this passage, you'll even see a heading that says, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. And the beauty of Galatians 3.13, as we're going to see, is that it crystallizes our focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ so that you can celebrate the righteousness of your faith rooted in the gospel, which is exactly how we want to be prepared spiritually for Christmas. Amen? It's, it's exactly how our hearts will be most ready to minister and to care for those that we, we love. The world we live in hears us talk about and sing about a Savior. It does. One of the most well-known hymns, Silent Night, uses the following lyrics. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Who is the Savior? And, and what has he saved us from? How, when, where did he redeem us? Why did he redeem us? As you can see in your outline, verse 13 provides a foundation for answering these questions that will allow us to celebrate our righteousness by faith in Christ alone, especially at Christmas. Let's start with who redeemed us. Look again at the beginning of verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us. Contrary to popular opinion or what people in the world might propose, Christmas is not a man-made holiday, nor was it intended to be man-centered. It was always centered on Christ and his mission, which was conceived in heaven and carried out on this earth. Christ came to redeem sinners, and Christmas is a celebration of the Redeemer's arrival. Look at Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. It'll be on the next page for you. For most of you, God's word says, or the next scroll of your um, app, God's word says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of as sons. Christmas has always been about Christ and redemption. And if we miss this, we miss Christmas. The word, the word translated redeemed in Galatians 3.13 is the same word used again here in chapter 4 verse 5. It means to buy in the slave market through the payment of the redemption price. In the ancient Near East, everyone was familiar with um, the, 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 slave, the slave block, the slave industry. Slaves were purchased or redeemed for a price. Sometimes the, the currency was money. Sometimes the currency was goods or an exchange for services. When a slave was redeemed, they belonged in full to their new owner. It was a legal transaction that bound the slave 
to their owner. God uses this graphic language to illustrate our redemption. The price tag and the currency used to, to purchase us, we know what it is, and it's what we celebrate. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood on the cross. He gave his life to redeem us. But the question that needs to be answered next is what he redeemed us from. Verse 13 tells us directly as it continues. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. If you're curious what the, the curse of the law is, our immediate context helps us. Look at verses 10 through 12. And I'm going to add some commentary as we read them. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Let's stop here for a moment. The law represents all of God's instruction in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. The curse of the law is this, due to sin, nobody can keep it perfectly. And we'll see, this is what Paul writes in, in verse 11. It, it presumes upon this, this reality. And if we look at the way everything was set up through the sacrificial system, even God presumed on this reality. Nobody was going to be able to keep it perfectly. That's why there was the Levitical priesthood. That's why there were the offerings, Right? Sin offerings, guilt offerings. That's why they were there. Paul, Paul, led by the Spirit, writes this at the beginning of, of verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. He's just like, you, you see this. You should understand this reality. No one can keep it perfect, nor does God ever expect that you would be able to keep it perfect. It's impossible. It's impossible for anyone to be justified by perfect obedience to the law. And this is why James wrote and affirmed in James 2.10 that whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. Verse 11 continues, For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practiced them he who practices them shall live by them. So this is important for, for you to have a firm grasp on. I'm grateful to be at, at a church that I believe does have a grasp on this reality. Because otherwise legalism creeps in and, and encroaches on the church, right? Um, the, the, the law and the purpose of the law is to, to, to guide our practice of our faith, Right? Is never intended, nor would it ever be God's intent that we would keep it perfectly. But yet, if you have interactions with people of the world, at world, and, and so oftentimes, they think that that's exactly what Christians are, are telling them they need to do. And, and, and they got it backwards, right? And we need to help them see that. That no, we're not saying that yeah, come be like me and, and do as I do and keep the law perfectly and then by God's grace you'll get, the chance, you'll get the chance to go to heaven. That's not the gospel. That's not 
the gospel. And verses 10 through 12 paint a very grim picture of the human situation. God's law requires a a life of perfect obedience in order to be right with him, yet no person can meet such a high standard. Consequently, everyone in the world has become a prisoner of sin, suffering the just condemnation of the curse of the law. If you look all the way down at one of my favorite verses in this same chapter, Galatians 3.22, it says this, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If someone you know claims that they're in good legal standing before God, right, apart from the redemptive work of Christ, you just need to tell them to shut up. You know, no, let them have it. Shut up. No, that's probably not a good idea. But what you can do is use this verse to minister to them and help them see their need for faith in Christ. Use it to minister to them. The Greek word here is shut up is, is an interesting word. It can also mean caught like a fish or hemmed in a net like a fish. And this may be why the ESV chooses to translate the verb imprisoned. The scripture has imprisoned everything under sin. It includes everyone and everything. Just like a fish trapped in a net. There is no wiggle room. You're stuck without hope like a fish out of water. Listen to what Puritan author John Flavel writes. The curse of the law condemns the sinner to death and soul and body. Nothing can free the soul but Christ. The curse of the law is the most dreadful thing imaginable. It strikes at the eternal life of the soul, and when it has pronounced its verdict, it is immovable. No tears or reformation can free the guilty sinner. It requires an infinite satisfaction that no mere creature can give. End quote. And this is why John wrote in 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or again, a couple verses later in 1 John 1.10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Given the desperate state of affairs, we're prompted to ask with the disciples, who then can be saved like they did in Luke 18.26? If what Paul said about the gravity of sin and the certainty of judgment is true, then human beings can only despair of ever obtaining God's favor. One commentator shares, like the character of Sisyphus in Greek mythology, they are forever consigned to rolling a huge boulder up a mountain only to have it come crashing down on their heads again and again. This is precisely the situation of all persons who are under the curse of the law, a verdict that is universal in scope that includes both Jews and Gentiles, end quote. And Sisyphus really provides a good illustration for us. Uh, and, and the person who wants to somehow think that their obedience to the law is it's going to ha- justify them, right? It's the equivalent of pushing that boulder, that, that impossible weight, up, up, up the hill again and again, only to have it 
come down and crushed you time and time again. And it crushing you is really a grace gift from God to help you to see your need, to see your heart, to completely repent, to, to, to die to self, to pick up your cross, to die to yourself and even your desire to make yourself somehow righteous or acceptable in his sight rather than trusting in Christ. The harder you work to make yourself righteous in your own accord, the more devastating the effect is on your life as you will be crushed. Well, thankfully, verse 13 continues. And this leads us to the third question in our outline that crystallizes our focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ so that you and I can celebrate our righteousness of faith rooted in the gospel. How he redeemed us. Who redeemed us? Christ. What did he redeem us from? The curse of the law. How did he redeem us? Look at the middle of verse 13. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. But in what sense could Christ have become a curse for us? Have you ever thought about that? No, Galatians 4.4 4 confirmed that Jesus was born under the law. He never sinned. Nor did he merit the curse of the law for any wrongdoing. Just like 1 Peter 1.9 shares, he was a lamb without blemish or defect. So how did he become a curse for us? Both the fact and the manner of Christ's death brought him determinately under the curse of the law. And to prove this point from Scripture, the Apostle Paul cites Deuteronomy 21-23 and quotes this verse, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now initially when you see this reference, what do you think of? I know what you think of. You think the same thing I thought of. You think of the cross, right? But Paul's readers, that's not, and, and those with a Jewish background, that's not what they would have thought of. In fact, the, the cross was invented by, by the Romans as a, a form of capital punishment, and the Jews actually despised it, right? So, so what did they think of? What did they have in mind? The Talmud, the, the collection of Jewish rabbinical writings, only recognizes four modes of capital punishment that were sanctioned by the Jewish people. Stoning, burning, beheading, and strangling the cr criminal. Not hanging, but strangling them while they were on the ground. Those, those, those were the four forms of capital punishment that, that were sanctioned by the Jewish people. After any of these forms of execution had been carried out, the corpse of the criminal would then be hoisted onto a piece of timber or a stake or a tree as an indication that the person had been justly condemned as a transgressor of the divine law. And this is the picture that the Apostle Paul and, and his readers would have had in mind. It's the picture that we should also have in mind. It was important that the criminal's corpse not be exposed beyond sundown because this would dishonor God and defile the land. And this is why in John's gospel, it records for us in John 19.31, 
the bodies of Jesus and the two thieves crucified with him were removed from their crosses before nightfall so as not to desecrate the Passover Sabbath. By being hung on a cross and becoming a gory spectacle for all to see, Jesus willingly exposed himself to the curse of the law. Now, being hung on, the, uh, on a tree was not the curse itself, but rather the public proof that one hanging on a tree had incurred the curse. And again, when we see this, there's a, a, a theological expression that we've talked about in past messages that we, that we need to see. This is a, a penal substitutionary atonement. Right? And, and those are important words for you as a Christian to, to understand. It was penal in that it was a penalty. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. It was substitutionary in that Jesus Christ was a substitute. In that he took your place, he took my place when he suffered and died on the cross. And it was an atonement and that it was a covering, that he covered the guilt of your sin. No matter what you've done, my friend, no matter how grievous, no matter how pathetic you think, no matter what sin that you've committed in your life, and in your own eyes, and the shame, as you think about what had taken place, right? The atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ covers your shame, covers the guilt of that sin. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is it. And we, we cannot lose sight of that. Right? You know, we can, we can, we can beat ourselves up time and time again. And, and oftentimes, maybe sometimes just even communication in your marriage or communication in, in friendships or relationships. And you said something you shouldn't have said or you did something that you shouldn't have done. And you've done it before. And how could I do it again? And again, and you beat yourself up and you carry the shame. It's covered. It's covered. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. This was all according to God's plan. And it always involved Jesus going to the cross, which the Apostle Peter affirms in Acts 2.23 when he's, he's talking, to, uh, talking to the people and he said, you crucified Jesus, right? And, and he said, according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. It wasn't a mistaken fate like some have tried to propose. Listen to what this theologian shares to wonder whether Christ could have accomplished the work of redemption by dying in some other manner. Have you ever thought about that? You know, he died on the cross, but could, could he have done it in some other manner? Could there have been another option? He says, to think about this, say, being drowned on the Sea of Galilee or hurled to death from the, the precipice of Nazareth or butchered as an infant by Herod, is like asking whether God could have become incarnate in a pumpkin. Vain curiosity bordering on blasphemy. Jesus moved through his public ministry, dodging bullets right and left, so to speak, because his hour had not yet come. 
The cross was neither an accident of history nor a divine emergency measure brought in to remedy in a, brought in to remedy an unforeseen situation. There was a cross in the heart of God from all eternity, for Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. End quote. And this is the tree behind your tree as you prepare to celebrate Christmas. And you may have noticed already, and I've alluded to it, that we have a beautiful, real Christmas tree right over here in the, in the front of the church, right? And we, we do want to celebrate Christmas, and it is tradition to celebrate the birth of the Savior. It is. But in order to fully appreciate his arrival, we inevitably must look to the cross, the tree behind the trees that would soon follow and fulfill all righteousness so that sinners like you and I could be forgiven. They're, they're, they're inseparable. They're, they're always connected. I was trying to think of an illustration, and it's interesting to me that both our celebrations are spaced out about halfway, really, and, and the Christmas and Easter, right, on each side of a year. It's actually a new year by the time we get to Easter, right? And you have the, the winter solstice where the days are getting shorter, and then it moves to the, the, the summer solstice, right, where things are going to get longer. And, and all of our days and all of our time go, bounce back and forth between these two realities. And if you think about just the celebration of of the, the, the dramatic events that took place in Christianity when we talk about Christmas and, and, and the birth of the Savior, right? And then you have Easter, which, which focuses on the death and the resurrection, right? They're contingent upon each other. You, you have to look, in order to truly celebrate, you have to look forward to the cross and the shadow that it lays over Christmas, in the same way that as you celebrate the resurrection, you have to look back at who it was that came to die and to be raised into newness of life. It was the God-man. It was Jesus Christ, God's own very son. But we do have trees. We have Christmas trees that celebrate the birth. But we always need to celebrate the tree behind the tree, right? Who redeemed us? What did he redeem us from? Right? This helps us to see it. How? How did he redeem us? How did he redeem us? It was Ian Bounds who once said, all God's plans have the mark of the cross on them. And yes, even the birth of the Son bore the mark of the cross. Question for you. Do you see the tree behind your tree? Will it capture your heart and cause you to meditate on Christ and the gospel this Christmas? Will it motivate you to share Christ and to share the gospel that was demonstrated for you? 
with your unsaved loved ones. If the tree behind the trees doesn't capture our hearts completely, then you and I are going to miss Christmas like so many in our world do. It will simply be a holiday, a gift exchange, maybe a nice dinner, maybe a new tie, new pair of bunny slippers. It won't be Christmas. It won't be Christmas. A true Christmas connects the dots from the manger to the cross and the forgiveness that is ours because the Savior is born. And can I give you a final exhortation? It's coming. Okay. Pastor John, what's coming? It. Can I tell you what it is? It's coming. I've already felt it. Some of you have already felt it. It's the craziness that's about to, to, to come in the next couple weeks with the celebration of the holiday, right? With all the distractions and all the things that are coming. It's, it's, it comes just like a tornado every year. And it can consume us. And I want to just give you a final exhortation. And I need this from my own heart. Slow down. Slow down. And last week I gave you that light homework assignment that had you reflect on a number of verses. And we actually kept it in, in the bulletin for those that weren't here last week, and if you listen online, you can, you can see what the reference was. But I have a simple, even lighter homework assignment for you this week. And that's just to spend some time reflecting and meditating on Galatians 3.13. And I would encourage you to pray, my friend, as you look at that verse, as you narrow it in, as you reflect upon its impact in your own life, how God might use it to prepare you, not only to minister to your own heart, and that he would shepherd you and have you be ready. But that you could be ready to minister to those whom you love. That's it. Well, to close, I want to conclude with what Puritan John Flavel wrote about Galatians 3.13 in closing. He says this, and it's so encouraging. Christ frees the believer from this curse. He dissolved the obligation to punishment and cancels all the bonds and chains of guilt. This is done by the full price being paid in place of the sinner, making a complete and full satisfaction. The ransom was paid in full and is sufficient. Christ was made a curse for us. It was an act of the God-man. No other was capable of giving satisfaction for an infinite wrong done to God. Since God is just, he cannot condemn the believer since Christ has satisfied his debt. Does Satan or conscience set forth your sin and all of its discouraging circumstances? God has set forth Christ as a propitiation. Oh, how comforting a text is this. It is real, proper, and full. His blood is the blood of assurance. The Father, with great severity, exacted satisfaction for our sins upon his soul and body. With the obedience of his Son, he was fully pleased and satisfied. 
Our faith in the satisfaction of Christ is built on the everlasting sealed truth of God. We should humbly adore the grace of God in providing such an assurance for us. End quote. I love the fact that he uses we should humbly adore the grace of God. And we'll sing that number of times over the next couple weeks. And we've already began singing it. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, oh, come, oh, come. Let's adore him. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads, rejoicing in you. Overwhelmed, really, that just even in one verse of Scripture that you could encapsulate so much as it relates to your plan for redemption. And Lord, we, we lose sight so often of of being redeemed. Whether it's our pride, whether it's the enemy that accuses us of the guilt and shame, it has been paid for in full by those who have trusted completely in the atoning work of Christ, that have cried out to him for forgiveness and have trusted and turned from their unbelief and fully to Christ. And I pray, Father, that if there's someone here today that knows that they have yet to do that, that they haven't cried out to you for forgiveness, for being a sinner, not for any specific sins, but for being a sinner, that you would, by your grace and mercy, draw them to yourself and have them cry out to you this day. May this be the brightest Christmas that they've ever celebrated because they truly see you for who you are, the great Redeemer, the great God of second chances, the great God that can cause a heart to be born again with new desires to live for you and to live for your glory. And for those of us who have trusted completely in Christ, we pray that you would set our affection on the cross, that we would connect the dots from the manger to the cross, and that we would celebrate all that's been done for us on our behalf because of Jesus Christ. It is truly indeed the power of the cross. May it be the meditation of our heart we prepare to celebrate Christmas. We give you thanks and praise for this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.